0: Only from Rustolium.
1: Hello, you're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Hugo Rifkin here, filling in for Matt Chorley today. Coming up on today's podcast, it's 60 years since Martin Luther King Jr. made his famous I Have a Dream speech. But what made that speech so good? And how can today's politicians learn from the great speeches from history? But first, it's time for The Columnists. We're talking Theresa May and much else besides with Libby Purvis from The Times and The Telegraph's Zoe Strimple. The Columnists on Times Radio. So I'm joined by the Times Economist Libby Purvis. Hello Libby. Hello. How are you? Are you well?
2: Oh, yes, yes, bank holiday Monday, but it oh, was working. <laughs> and,
1: and the Telegraph columnist Zoe Strimple. Hello Zoe. Hi Hugo. Fancy meeting you here. How are you doing?
3: <laughs> we have to start meeting like this. <laughs> um, I'm I'm all right, a bit tired.
1: Yep, good. Well, thanks for being here. Much appreciated. Let's dive into some of the topics we want to look at this morning. First up, Theresa May. Yes, Theresa May has written a book. It's out next month. It's called The Abuse of Power. And in it, she defines uh, as, uh, the abuse of power is something she defines as institutions of the state and, sorry, people who work in institutions of the state, no, that's not right at all, institutions of the state and people who work with them, putting themselves first, way ahead of the people they are there to serve, I think is what she means. There's an extract in today's Times, and she's done an interview with the Sunday Times as well, available with a digital subscription on the website. Uh, Zoe, are you going to be reading this book? Are you as excited as I am that, that Theresa May has finally broken her
3: silence? I mean, I I'm sort of semi excited. It um I, I would probably read it. I will probably read it. Um it, it does sound intriguing. I, I like that she's just going in on a sort of um hatchet job rather than trying to sort of make it about her, her personal biography, although I see from the extract that it that there's plenty of that as well. Um so I think I think it sounds it it, it sounds worth reading, uh but also uh not not I'm not going to say I think I'm going to think it's the most thrilling thing ever. I mean, her her points are, I, I do find books about selfishness a bit boring. Okay, <laughs> <she's>, uh, self- <laughs> selfish, not so selfish. Is that a paradox? It's, it's,
1: I'm trying to figure that out. No, sorry, go on. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sure. Um, and I, you know, we'll get to this if we discuss another book, by Danny Kruger's book as well. Um, and also corruption in politics this is a really uh, important point. However, I think just based on a gr- brief glance, she's coming at it from a bit of a, heavy-handed, sort of monotone, which I think might be a little over the top. I mean, she says, you know, she's seen the abuse of power at its worst um, mm-hmm. among our parliamentarians. I think if you were to look at, you know, a few other countries, you might see the abuse of power at its worst. I think it's, it's relatively on the global scale, small fry in Britain, but that doesn't mean there isn't a problem with our political culture mm-hmm. in general. So I would be more interested to know how it came to feel that we have mediocrities, um, who are all, you know, chasing their tails around as as our entire political culture, rather than corruption being Britain's um, first and and Mm. foremost uh, problem, I think. I think the final thing I would say is that I feel like I've read a lot of Dominic Cummings on how terrible, self-serving, counterproductive and stupid the government is, alongside there being some, you know, very good eggs, very talented people. So I'm wondering, like, what the fresh angle is going to be, really.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Look, Libby, as Home Secretary and then Prime Minister, May was in charge for Windrush and Grenfell and and the Brexit stalemate that followed the the, the referendum. In one of the quotes from today's extract on the latter, we get the line, Aha, I hear you exclaim she's trying to blame others for her own mistakes. I'm not. What I want to do is show how the power plays in Parliament contributed to the stalemates that ensured until it was broken by the general election of 2019. So, I mean, basically what she's doing is she's looking for sort of institutional reasons for her own failure. Do you think that's really reasonable
2: um. <laughs> not entirely but I I am always interested to hear a new voice about what is really going on and why it goes wrong uh, you know we, we tend to hear the very sort of loud and, and popular and, and and sort of uh, self-seeking um, voices I mean Dominic for Dominic Cummings to go on and on about how people uh, are sort of out, out for their own ends I find a bit <laughs> a bit ripe uh, but I I know I'm, I'm interested in what she says I think her attacks on John Burko are riveting Mm. and useful, because we've all sort of rather forgotten he existed now. But he did do a certain amount of damage. And I think we've been short of senior politicians who are serious and well-meaning and modest and not self-seeking. I mean, I suppose the nearest right to the top looks like Rishi Sunak, and he's probably going to unravel as the election gets closer. But I think Theresa May seems to me a decent person, and her voice needs to be heard, even though we may disagree with some of it.
1: I mean, you're right that the fact that she focuses on Burko is very interesting because, I mean, I think, I would have thought of Theresa May and I think maybe we remember Theresa May as somebody who was brought down by harder Brexiters, brought down by the likes of Boris Johnson who succeeded her, brought down by not being able to steal her own party, whereas her views very much seems to be, at least from the extracts, uh, that she was actually sort of brought down by the, the sly non-corporation of the Remainer faction led by the Speaker, right Libby?
2: Well, I rather hope that she's going to say rather more Mm. in the book when it comes out (laughs) about the Remainer faction because the damage that has been done by that blocking and blocking and blocking, the damage that has been done to our relationship ongoing with Europe, you know, the damage that has been done to the economy by that faction, you know, which would not accept the referendum, I think is immense. And I'd like to hear more on that.
1: Sure. Uh, Libby, sticking with you, let's turn to your column in the paper this week, uh, well today indeed this morning uh, in the Times comment section, subscribers do have a look, uh, which, uh, which uh, concerns another political book, this time from the Conservative backbencher Danny Kruger. What's the argument he makes in his book roughly?
2: Well, it's interesting. I've been sort of bickering below the line with people who (laughs) simply won't read it because they hate Danny Kruger. But I think ideas which come, which are sort of bravely and strongly expressed and which come from someone some of whose other views you don't like, you know, still should be paid attention to. And I thought the book was riveting. Um, it, It is about the idea of a good society and how, in many ways, government policy actually militates against a lot of the things which most people find sustaining in. Their lives and work, you know, the, the family and marriage and rooted communities, um, and that the state spends a lot to take responsibilities off people and to tell them what's best, and and it doesn't really value the important people who hold society together, teachers and prison officers and carers and so on. But if half his points and wishes and ideas were being brought to us by labor or the lib dems in the very sort of strong terms okay rather religious terms that he he brings them it would be rather refreshing but instead they're coming from a, a tory backbencher and he's a decent man you know he 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 when he was very young he founded a very good prison charity that's how I the only time I've ever met him was over that you know uh, and I, I think we should listen and I don't like the some of the sense that we're getting back of we shouldn't listen cause he's a tory we shouldn't hmm. listen cause he said dubious things about abortion rights you know no we should listen to anybody it's same as with Theresa May really I'm just being very mild and vanilla here
1: <laughs> um Zoe does the state and the government have any business talking about values and virtues in this kind of way and <clears throat> sort of telling us the shape of how we ought to live rather than just providing I, the conditions yeah, for us to do so
3: I don't like it um I think I think inasmuch as it would be nice for the government to have a set of coherent political ideas Um, I I would be keen on that. But what I'm hearing in the Kruger book um, is something akin to what I've been hearing more and more among the new, sort of the resurgent right um, of, of, you know, partly of the Tories, but also the kind of national conservatism crowd, who are very keen that, you know, everybody fulfills this kind of idea of almost like a sort of top-down, um c- enforced community i don't know it, to me it began with this kind of well this has been going on for millennia but a, a distrust of this sort of cosmopolitan international mm-hmm. global type of person and speaking as a deeply cosmopolitan international global <laughs> jew um i'm made very uncomfortable by these sort of we should really be getting closer and, it's very volkish we should be getting closer and closer to our communities and actually Again, I'm going to just speak personally and try to then try to widen out. But during COVID, you know, people talked about how wonderful it was to be um, f- um, sort of thrown upon their communities. And, and I have a very uh, sort of hundreds of people that live around a, a communal garden with mixed housing, some as social housing, some as key worker housing. And there was a lot of community. And after two months of lockdown, I began to be absolutely I could not bear another day of seeing the same deal. <laughs> It began to make me feel completely claustrophobic and I craved getting back out into the kind of global but sorry, So
2: you should read you should read his actual book. Um, I mean I think I like what you're saying, which is which is that basically society should be absolutely organized around people like you who are really bored of their neighbours. I can kind of relate well, to I that. I need
3: the option. <laughs> I suppose I just get very—I get antsy when I can fit something into this more. uh, For me, locally. But don't honestly
2: give 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 him a chance. Read the actual book and bits of it, and bits of it you'll really like.
3: Well, I complete yeah, and I completely agree with you, Libby, that one should completely read these things. And and for that, he's a Tory is absolutely no issue to me. But you know, I suppose I'm curious, Libby, if you if you do feel that this is sort of so new because I know David Goodhart has just written a book basically along these lines that we should value care workers and we. Should make it easier for women, essentially, to stay at home with with children. And and I suppose my you know the the, the final really bit of discomfort I have with with Kruger's what I, it appears to be Kruger's entire vision. I know that you say Libby that he he's impatient with the Dickensian idea of the angel in the home. But so often what these arguments add up to, and what I've been hearing recently, you know in, you know also I think what, what David Goodhart's interesting book also suggests is that. Really, it's, quote, unnatural for women to be working when they're when they're mothers of young children. Oh, wait,
2: no, he's not. He's, so, he's totally not saying that. Honestly, right. the trouble is there's loonies on both sides of anything. You know, there's the Ayn Rand loonies one side and there's the yeah. kind of some rather odd numbers of the new conservatives on the on the other side. And you just have to you know, you, you have to not judge people by the loonies who agree with them what does he
1: actually it's it's literally what I do for a living I feel look something that sort of always bothers me here and look I haven't read the book you have read the book so you can set me straight if I'm getting this wrong but when conservatives in particular talk about the the values of marriage the importance of marriage of of caring roles and all that kind of stuff I always think there's something that always bothers me about the way that look surely if you want to champion marriage one way you do about that is by banging on about marriage and perhaps even tax incentive for marriage and all that and just making marriage the focus point. Another way you do that is by thinking about the conditions that exist within society that if you want people to live in a traditional way that allow them to do so. So you think about the way that for for, for example it's virtually impossible for uh, a couple for a couple with, with children to be a single earning couple these days certainly that's in most of our major cities. About, that's what
2: that, that's but what it, he's it's, saying. He, 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 it's full of policy. I mean he is actually he is there are policy policy it, points but, in it there are policies about taxation and so on. You know he he does actually address some of is this it, though not in Detail. But
1: Libby, is it policy in terms of like, if we build it in policy terms, then, then it, if we build it, then it will come. As in, if we create these, these situations, then people will marry, they will stay together, they will have stable family units. Or is it to taking that kind of sort of, a, that sort of talismanic thing of marriage, marriage, marriage?
2: No, I don't, I don't think he's being talismanic, actually. Mm. I, th- I think he does. He talks about the conditions which government creates, the taxation, well, you know, the detail of, yeah. of taxation, which, which government has, which, which makes it harder and harder. I mean, the housing disaster. You know, he talks about, about the way that governments, his government, the lot that he's in, have sucked up to the huge house builders who like to keep the prices high. You know, they like to build in places where the prices are going to be high rather than in places where the prices will be lower. You know, and uh, he, he talks about the housing crisis. He doesn't talk in immense detail about everything. But honestly, just give him the credit at least that he's not just, he's not doing the, oh, back to basics, you know, why aren't you all decent people and stay married? You know, he's not doing that. And remember, I mean, he was a huge backer of Boris for a long, long mm. time. He defended him. Uh, so he can't be that much of a virtue, uh,
3: you know,
2: <laughs> a virtue isn't, fascist, isn't his, can he?
3: Isn't his goal, Libby, based on, you know, he seems very preoccupied with knowing what makes people, People happy and that the government should be working to those ends but again mm, I, I mean he's saying he'd like to go back to before the 1950s but people were absolutely no, not. Miserable. i thought that's what he oh well I, I, that I, how, how does he know what makes people happy i don't know i think there's there's a problem with Pinning all of the the woes of the day on things that are actually amazing. I think the, the you know the, the the kind of freedom to come in and out of communities. The I agree that there's some you know the effects of the market have left people feeling desperate, especially in the, in in housing. But also you know I I suppose I just miss the the days of a, of a more robust a, a, to, a more robust Tory defence of you know how how profit and markets might fit fit with this and I think let, Kruger
1: let, represents this. Let's hear it for money and fecklessness is what Zoe's saying. I just, I've decided <laughs> look, I think we're making an excellent argument that people should at the very least read Libby's column in the, op- the opinion section in the Times today. Uh, let's talk about Keir Starmer now and whether he's posh. His, dire- his own director of strategy has said that he's viewed as off the scale posh by Red Wall voters. Uh, Starmer has of course been keen to stress his working class roots, speaking about experiencing poverty while growing up. Just last week he said he wouldn't have been able to afford to go to university and he regularly refers to his father's trade as a Toolmaker and his mother's career as a nurse, and so on. But he's insisted he's also proud of his honour, his knighthood, and of his parents' pride in seeing him knighted at Buckingham Palace. The Conservatives, of course, have attempted to use starmer's title and former profession to cast him as part of the elite. Indeed, this is a man who was a sort of you know, top London lawyer for decades and was allegedly also the, the inspiration for Mister Darcy and Bridget Jones. So he's not unposh. But Libby, is it a problem?
2: It's a terrible problem. I mean, <laughs> the, the idea that a knighthood makes you posh is, is quite funny anyway, but our class system or our mental... So, uh, innate... Sorry, can
1: I just pick you up on that? You think a knighthood doesn't make you posh?
2: Hey, of course it doesn't right no, no,
1: no. go on right No, it mean
2: it means you you got a knighthood for something you did you did something I mean it doesn't mean that anymore because right. people get terrible decorations for all sorts of things I mean peers uh, but you don't you you don't you, you, don't, think you, but you, you don't think
1: you become posh with a knighthood anyway no, sorry you were I saying. don't
2: think you do but I, I think every country's got a ridiculous sort of class system you know America's got rednecks versus preppies and the French know exactly who is bon chic bon genre but we are particularly awful in Britain and um I think I think it's a great it's a great problem the way we think too much about class and it, it even works in a sort of inverted sense in that you know some people oh you know he must be he's an honest chap you know just because he talks rough you know and and comes from a rough background and it, it led in, in inversely to Boris getting a lot of his fan base just by being a P.G. Woodhouse character <laughs> and therefore a joke and therefore a good guy because he was a joke because we like jokes, you mm. know. And I think Boris got too far on that with the sort of inverse inverted snobbery. And I think it's, it's all nonsense. It just really is. And... Um, uh, we we need to grow out of it, but it's very hard for any nation to grow out of it. You know, yeah. class systems are, you know, they're, they're just so well, hardwired they're... into us. But of course, it's nonsense. He's not a bit posh, Starmer. He's a bit, well... a bit of a parvenu, frankly, darling. <laughs> no, absolutely.
1: What what do you reckon, Zoe?
3: <laughs> well, I think even if he was posh um, and was good, that would be completely fine. And I, I do I, mm. I agree with everything that be said, actually. But I, I think I go even further and say I, I don't like um, any sort of I don't. <sighs> not maybe well it's a question of it's interesting when, when sort of men talk about abortion rights and things is that more of a problem but i'm thinking in general i like to say i like to argue that any kind of identity is not relevant what's relevant is what somebody is saying what they're doing and the degree to which they limit hypocrisy in their own life to the best that they can so i i'm with i'm with libby i think it's sort of tiresome and disappointing um uh I, Is it really about the class system, though? I'm not 100% sure. I think it's more of a sort of, it's like, we don't know quite how to judge politicians now, because it's not 100% clear what they're actually selling and what they're about. So you kind of fall back on these personal attributes. Mm, Uh, I I, I think, I think there's, there's, you know, what would, what disturbs me about People fixating on this is that I think there's an anti-intellectualism, obviously that yes, precisely underpins that.
1: I think that's Sorry. precisely right. I, I also yeah. think I'd quite like him to say, you know what, I I am posh. I was a lawyer for years and I got a knighthood. Yeah. Well done, me. Yeah. Anyway, exactly. let's let's <laughs> let, let's move on. Let's talk about clothing at festivals, uh, which I'm I'm very excited about because I'm actually going to a festival after I come off air today. There we go. Uh, look, <laughs> no. um, uh, traders at Reading Festival and fans are openly defying one of its rules, which bans clothing that, and I quote, promotes cultural appropriation. The event run by festival republic states that uh, sort of various items that can't be taken onto the campsite or arena and they include clothing or garments which promote cultural appropriation and <laughs> alongside anything that could reasonably be used as a weapon uh, but people are selling and more shame on them wearing elephant print harem pants uh, native american ponchos and apparently authentic yak wool tibetan shawls so is this an outrage or are these just like good stuff to wear in the outdoors
3: I mean, I don't think they're good stuff to wear. But I mean, it's obviously cringe. I'd, but, lo- I'd
1: love a poncho. I'm always, always <laughs> jealous I like men got ponchos. Some. What do you mean you think I have some? How I'm you? sure I've
3: seen you in a poncho. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't think it's an outrage. It's clearly not an outrage. I, I think the whole thing about cultural appropriation is, is is toxic, ridiculous, and completely shows. It's just something that has nothing to do with the matter at hand. Um and, and you know, if you're going to express disdain for another culture, you're not going to do it by showing you think it's so cool that you want to have it all. Over, or, you know, you want to be decked out mm. in it. Also, you know, I yeah, in a in a, in a festival set context, I mean, the whole. I, I, I take my hat off to you, Hugo, for for drag, for going to a festival. <laughs> at, at, well, I'm not going to say it. An <laughs> well, hour, my at, at wow, but, Thank uh, you. But, but yeah, no, but I I think it's 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 ridiculous. I think more broadly, the point has to be that culture exists through various forms of, you know, is built on and, and creativity is, is all about it. I personally would be delighted if non-Jews started wearing Stars of David. Um, <laughs> I, I was trying to think, would I like it if they were wearing, like, the full garb, like, at synagogue? Maybe less, but maybe yeah. so. If, if they're showing that they think it's cool, that would be great.
1: That would be interesting if that was the new festival look. So, so <laughs> I mean, uh, Libby, I, I I sort of, I didn't really understand the point about cultural appropriation. I didn't think it was uh, reasonable until I saw a photo of, of, uh, of what was the name? Su- Susan Boyle the singer wearing an Indian headdress at Tea in the Park and I was like oh no I get it now this can be offensive what do you think?
2: Oh I don't think it is I think imitation is the sincerest form of flattery and I think we should stand up for the right of a (laughs) pasty-faced, wannabe, cool, uh, middle-class, middle-aged people to wear Rasta hats, uh, uh, Aztec poncho, elephant-print trousers and quite possibly sort of curly-toed Islamic sandals at the same time. I'm absolutely all for it. And, And also, what you've got to remember is a lot of this stuff is actually very, very cheap. I mean, it has come from obviously sweatshops often in in countries far away. And that's one of the reasons that people buy something brightly coloured and jolly and wear it Mm. um, at a festival. It's because it will get so muddy and disgusting, they'll probably throw it away afterwards. You know, that's not a good thing uh, ecologically. But on the other hand... It's sort of practical. And I think the hypocrisy of festival republic of all people deciding to ban cultural appropriation in any form is just astonishing.
1: That was Libby Purvis and Zoe Strimple. Remember, you can read Libby in The Times every week. Just go to thetimes.co.uk slash times red box and get yourself a digital subscription. You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this The Big Thing on Times Radio. So, 60 years ago today, the civil rights activist Martin Luther King stood in front of 250,000 people on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., and made a speech that would change the course of American history.
4: I have a dream
1: that one day yeah. this nation will rise up live out the true meaning of its creed we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal Joining me are Phil Collins, who was once Tony Blair's chief speechwriter, Jessica Cunniff, David Cameron's speechwriter, and Chris Wilkins, chief speechwriter for Theresa May. Morning, all. Hope you're well. Um, let's start with Martin. Let's start with Martin Luther King. Uh, Phil, I'll come to you first. This speech was it was partially improvised. King drew together sections from other speeches he's made over the previous few years. Does that does that make it a bit of a cheat, or is that just to be expected?
0: No, it wasn't to be expected at all. In fact, it was um, his team were really irritated with him for doing it because they all insisted that they write a, a brand new speech for the big occasion in Washington. And the, if you go to YouTube, you can actually see the speech that they wrote. It's called the cancel check, and it's the first, 50, first 12 minutes. But it doesn't really go down all that well. It's fine, but it's a bit flat. And so what happened is that there was a, a gospel speech called Mahalia Jackson, who traveled with the King entourage, she's behind him on the podium and she whispers to him at a certain point, tell them about the dream, Martin, tell them about the dream. So he goes to his stock of phrases he's got in his mind from being a preacher around the circuit. And he does start to do it extemporary. And that's absolutely ludicrous thing to do. Is you never advise anybody. You're totally off script. And exactly when this happened, one of his speechwriters, Walker Wyatt, turned to his colleague and he said, oh, no, he's doing the dream, which is probably the worst judgment of any speech that's ever been uttered. So it was a completely, uh, it was improvised and it wasn't expected. And so that clip you just played, which is, part of perhaps the greatest passage of rhetoric in modern um politics was not not improvised in the sense that he'd said similar things before but it certainly wasn't intended to have been said on that
1: occasion that is that is an amazing thing to learn uh, jess talk us through the sort of the technical details on this speech the use of rhetoric the biblical references and so on uh, why is it such a good example of how to write a speech
5: it's a fantastic example um Hugo, I think, as Phil said, it, it's the best um, in kind of modern times. I think what Martin Luther King does so successfully is he connects with his audience and it, you have to listen to it. You listen back to it and you hear the sort of interaction with the audience to the point where they're kind of directing him and egging him on. Um, how does he connect with them? I think the most powerful way is, is that use of metaphor, Um you know, every abstract concept that he talks about is linked to a real thing. You know, he describes justice as a bright day. He talks about injustice as quicksand. These are all sort of concrete things that we know and people in the audience, people beyond that immediate audience and people today can still understand and still resonates with people. So it's it's the way he uses language and particularly metaphor and imagery i think that really connected with people you know mm. people make a lot of the musicality of the speech and it is you listen to the thing in its entirety and it it's like a song it builds and builds to the, to the climax to the peroration at the end um it's a masterpiece it is like a song but it's also like a picture i mean it's image after image that he um provides us with and i think that's why it still kind of works today and why it's a, an absolutely fantastic example of um rhetoric mm.
1: Chris is this the sort of speech that you'd study when writing your own speeches or is is context very important you know prime ministers have to make so many speeches and if you end up delivering the sort of the I have a dream type speech when you're I don't know sort of in front of audio representatives in Sunderland or something I mean does that work or, or can you always turn to a great speech in order to seek inspiration.
4: Well, certainly, when trying to prepare for a big speech for, say, Theresa or anyone else I've written for, you, you do go back and, and look at other speeches and, and seek inspiration. That's absolutely the case. But I think it would be rather hubristic to say, uh, this is a speech that you can look at too closely, because it was of its time, and it was delivered by an incredible uh, individual, and and would that we all had the opportunity to write for people like uh, Martin Luther King. But. Um, there are some things you can take from it, and Jess has talked about, the sort of technical aspects of it, which you can you can definitely uh, lean on. Um, I think one thing I always talk about when trying to teach people now about speech writing is to really think about the, you know, start by thinking about the headline that you want at the end of this speech what is it that you want somebody to write about the speech you have written and um although maybe he improvised it you know here there was that clear theme that clear message uh, you know i have a dream an incredible mm. uh, line really to, to take from the speech so there are elements you can take from it and definitely you always go back and look at speeches but i think the context of this was the real thing it was a great speech brilliantly delivered but the context of all the people on the mall uh, there in washington uh, of the moment when it was looking at the legislation to, end, uh, to enhance civil rights etc the context was one thing that made this speech so utterly memorable i think
1: let's uh, let's move on to some other great examples of great political speeches and we obviously could not not include this one
4: let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties And so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth
1: last for a thousand years, men will still say
3: this was their finest hour.
1: That's, of course, Winston Churchill's finest hour, and we could probably have chosen any of Churchill's wartime speeches. Um, Jess, what makes Churchill such a a great speechwriter?
5: Well, the interesting thing, Hugo, is that Churchill didn't love writing speeches or making speeches to begin with, but he worked and worked and worked at it. And he, I think, wrote most of his own speeches and he would work on them sort of in the bath and in bed and he would dictate a lot of it. Um, I think what made him a great speaker was that he practised and he practised and he learned his craft and he was obviously taught rhetoric. He knew um, a lot about the tools and tricks of the trade. Um, but again, it sort of comes back to that Martin Luther King point, as he really knew how to connect with people, and he knew sort of the right words for the right moments. He, you know, used the sort of metaphors that we've talked about before very vividly in his "We will fight on the beaches." speech um he also used quite a lot of humor which you don't really kind of consider would be a thing during wartime um, but everything he did kind of connected with his audience not just if he was speaking to the commons but the sort of wider audience of the public and even beyond that you know to, to countries overseas um wanted the message to to ring out you know as far as america in terms of what he was saying so he was very aware of his audience he knew what he was doing with his craft and the main thing is he practiced and mm. he practiced and practiced
1: Chris, um, uh, Churchill's words, they're now sort of embedded in the British psyche. We'll we'll always have them in there. What what is it about them that has planted them there? How did he manage to pull that off?
4: Well, I think, again, context obviously matters. Um, He was speaking at the moments of national crisis, and, and so they embed themselves anyway. He also had this, incredibly distinctive voice, which helps uh, uh, to embed these language in a way that, that, you know, if you had a more sort of uh, a less recognizable voice, then it would probably wouldn't be so effective. But he, uh, and Jesse writes about him, him rehearsing and practicing and everything, but again, just the way he used language to capture moments, there's this was clip he, that you just played there, where he uses the phraseology of lettuce, where he's imploring people to sort of get on board with him, to join a mission and things like that. and he would do things like uh, like that um, and then speak to that greater national national moment, you know, finest hour, et cetera. These things that speak to um, actually bringing people together. And I think that's something that means that they do stick in the consciousness when you are imploring to unity and trying to bring people together, something maybe we could learn rather more about these days in politics. That's the kind of thing that means actually many, many people can find something in those speeches mm-hmm. to um, cling on to because they are a point of unity.
1: Phil, could anyone have made Churchill's speeches or is it important that he made them? Could he have written them for someone else? Would they have worked? What's the link between the, the speaker and the speech?
0: Well, they could have worked, but um, I mean, there's. It's always been the case that um, politicians have had speechwriters ever since um, the Emperor Nero employed Seneca as his speechwriter. So it's not a novelty. Um, I quite often do a sort of double act with mary beard where she thinks that everything that's gone wrong in politics derives from the moment that politicians stop writing their own speeches so speech writers are to blame for the decline of politics but needless to say i don't agree with that and i doubt chris or jess will either um though clearly you need to write for that person i mean the the biggest separation successful separation between the two i think is peggy noonan and ronald reagan well, Reagan is a great speaker because he was a wonderful actor, and Peggy Noonan is you know the doyen of modern speechwriters. Usually, the relationship is much closer in that Peggy wrote and Ronald spoke, whereas with Ted Sorensen and John F. Kennedy, for example, and with most other relationships, less celebrated, it's really intimate. It's really close. They're there together all the time. There's a great privilege of being the speechwriter is that you do have to be present all the time to kind of work, get into the idiom and the language. So it's almost always collaborative, and there's almost always loads of people involved in the speech, far too many, in fact, usually. Part of the task is to keep people at bay and to be the (laughs) editor-in-chief. So I wouldn't say just anybody could have done it, because clearly there was a courage in Churchill, um, which is substantive and material about what he really thought. And quite a lot of his party didn't think that stuff. Um, But he didn't necessarily have to be his own writer, and Mm -hmm. he, he was unusual in that in that he was such an inveterate writer of speeches. And he, you know, in his early career, he was regarded as slightly um, w- ridiculous because he, he lavished rhetorical constructions on things that weren't worth it. There's a lovely story about him as a by-election candler in Oldham in 1899. And he stands in an empty church hall, and he says, Never before in the history of Lancashire have so many people of Oldham had so much to eat. <laughs> And it's exactly the same construction that you get in 1940, but, of course, it's absurd. Yeah. Which just goes to show
1: that context. Yeah, sure. Well, look, let's let's jump forward a bit and let's take a listen to, to Margaret Thatcher's party conference speech in 1984, which was, of course, made on the same day as an IRA bomb attack at the Grand Hotel where Thatcher and other cabinet ministers had been staying during the conference. And the fact
2: that we are gathered here now, shocked, but composed and determined... Is a sign not only that this attack has failed, but that all attempts to destroy democracy by terrorism will fail.
1: I mean, talk about rising to the to the occasion, Chris. Look, making making or producing a speech like that in such circumstances, knowing that you've got to sort of go out and give it. What's the um, what? What do you turn to when you've got to sort of respond to something as on the nose as that?
4: Yeah, it's. Uh I guess the great challenge is a speechwriter. on when I was in Downing Street, I had to, uh, unfortunately, on a number of occasions, write speeches for the Prime Minister in response to terrorist attacks. And you know, there are some speeches you labour over for weeks and and you know go through lots of drafts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And in moments like this, you do just have to um, respond slightly on on the cuff. And and at that point, I think what Phil was just talking about. Really matters, which is knowing intimately the person you are writing for. You know, you've got to think what is it that they want to say instantly, off the cuff, from the heart, what is their instinctive response to this situation they are in. Um, Again, typically in moments like that, you want to uh, portray a unifying message because you know that people are fearful, so you're trying to bring people uh, together. Um, so that's almost the core of what you have to do. Um, but then you also have to find a way to sort of move on beyond that moment, interpret it, but then move on so that mm-hmm. you're not dwelling on on kind of what's what's happened. Uh, and I think that clip you've just played there um, about, you know, not only has it failed this time, but the attempts will always fail, is trying to take the specific and make a more general point. And that's kind of the the. T- for moments like that in crisis. Bring people together and then try and use that to move on to something beyond the uh, particular moment.
1: Let's, let's take a listen now to a speech made by Thatcher's political rival, Neil Kinnock, that was made a few days before the 1992 election.
0: Margaret Thatcher wins on Thursday. I warn you not to be ordinary. I warn you not to be young. I warn you not to fall ill. And I warn you, not
1: to grow old. Sorry, that's <clears throat> excuse me. That's eighty three, not ninety two. My mistake. Uh, Phil, why does that work so well? Is it the repetition? Is it the sort of the the foreboding? I warn you, nature of it. What's happening there?
0: Yeah, it's, it's both those things. I think it it, it is um, the technique we're very familiar with of a repetition, which goes all the way back to Cicero and Aristotle, and he does that beautifully. I think it's also his voice. I mean, Kenek has an English, um, but. Also, I I think that speech, and all of Kinnock's speeches in a way, uh, and I'm an enormous fan of Neil Kinnock as a speaker, um, but they show the limits of speeches as well, because Neil Kinnock didn't become Prime Minister. No, he was, if it were a contest for who were the best speaker for a debating competition, Neil Kinnock would have won. But he Mm -hmm. didn't win. Um, Mm -hmm. The Labour Party lost. And all of his speeches were magnificently effective within the Labour Party, like his famous speech in Bournemouth, where he expelled militants. Um, but th- and there were great rallying cries for the faithful, but they didn't extend beyond. Mm. So I uh, have to say there's a failure rhetorically there to extend the audience, which is also something you're always trying to do. And when you're writing for a prime minister, as we've all done, you are, in theory at least, trying to write for the widest possible audience, not just the people who already agree with you. Mm. Um, you know that not everyone's going to listen, but you, you, you're trying to extend beyond. And, and that's something that Kenneth didn't manage to do in that speech.
1: That's interesting. Let's, uh, let's listen to David Cameron's bid for the Conservative Party leadership in 2005, a speech called Change to Win.
4: And let the message go out from this conference that a modern, compassionate conservatism is right for our times, right for this new generation, right for our party, and right for our country. And if we have the courage to grab it, to seize it, the bravery to fight for it with every ounce of vigour and passion in our bodies—nothing and no one will stop
1: us. Thank you, um, Jess. You suggested this one. I remember the contest. It was—it was—it was close, but not that he was the—he was the, the leading candidate. What I mean—is this the speech that tipped him over the line? And if so, how?
5: It was. I mean, it was back in two thousand and five, October two thousand and five. The Tory Party conference um, leadership competition going on at the time. And David Davis was the favourite and David Cameron was this kind of young um, underdog, basically hadn't been an MP for very long. And they both delivered their speeches to the Tory party conference. And overnight, David Cameron became the favourite off the back of this particular speech that you've just played a clip of. And much has been made of it at the time that it kind of turned things around, um, changed the course of David Cameron's life, obviously, and also British politics. I think what he did so powerfully in that speech and actually I I went back and listened and reread the uh, David Davis speech which isn't bad at all it's pretty well written if you put them alongside each other I th- I'd say they're both very well put together but what Cameron does is he's pretty daring in his approach he he gives the tory party you know some harsh truths uh, he says labor have failed but so have we and that's you know pretty bold for a um, prospective leader to say to the party faithful. So I think, as with many speeches, you know, the the most famous speeches uh, in politics, they're the ones that do something daring that that um, confound expectations, and that's certainly what Cameron did with that particular speech. Whereas David Davis kind of trotted out the same old sort of Tory fair, Tory Tory red meat. He's he kind of goes through crime and terrorism and talks about drugs and family breakdown and it's kind of it, it's Tory red meat but it's kind of stale red meat by this point and David Cameron's coming here with a fresh message and focusing on education and life chances um so he, he, he's pretty bold it was a risk but it paid off because it totally turned things around for him mm, okay well
0: sorry. Uh, sorry. it's also theatre isn't it? Because Davis delivered his in a conventional way on a podium, um, standing still. Cameron moved around and did it kind of without notes. And it was, um, he was embodying the fact that he was new and young Mm. and vigorous in the way he did it as well. So when you read it back, it's a bit ragged, but actually it was brilliant at the time, a really consequential speech, I think, because it did, I think it won in that contest. and, And it did change politics in the way most speeches don't it's harder to trace the impact of some speeches, even Martin Luther King. It's not that easy to trace directly the, the impact of that speech in particular. But with the Cameron speech, I think it was absolutely directly consequential in winning him that, that role.
1: Yeah, no, I think that, that's fair. Look, Phil, you'll remember our last speech very well, I'm sure. This is Tony Blair's conference speech in 2006 on the legacy of New Labour.
0: And the true believer, the true progressive, believes in social justice, in solidarity, in help for those not able to help themselves. They know the race can't just be to the swift and survival for the strong. But they also know that these values, gentle and compassionate as they are, have to be applied in a harsh, uncompromising world. And that what makes the difference is not belief alone, but the raw courage to make it happen.
1: So, Phil, a, a quick answer, if you can manage one. But, uh, I mean, we, 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 we've we got to move on. But what's the, what's the function of a speech like this when it's a speech about a legacy? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to sort of safeguard your own legacy? Or if you're the speaker, or are you trying to sort of leave people reassured at your departure? What's happening?
0: You're trying, essentially, to bind in your successes. So you're trying to make an argument that's so compelling that the the person who's coming next will accept that that tune, that Tony Blair's only tune, which is he got to be nice but you've also got to be realistic is the only way that Labour Party can win so
1: that was the essential purpose of that speech. Mm. Um, Chris, talk us through the process of writing a speech for a Prime Minister is, how does it work? Does the Prime Minister come to you with an idea? Do you go to them with an idea? Uh, or do you have loads on the sort of the back burner waiting for the right event? What's the process here?
4: I think every Prime Minister does this differently as you'd expect but really that depends on their enthusiasm for actually uh, making speeches in the first place so to talk to my experience of working with Teresa, um, she didn't love uh, the process of communicating really or, or making speeches. Um, so when a big speech was coming up, um, you'd have an initial conversation uh, with her about kind of what the key themes were, but actually she would largely then let. Uh, the team go off and, and draft them um, and come up with something. And um, that might go through a few drafts before actually something was was presented to, to her. Um, and uh, that would often be not long before the speech was was actually due to be delivered. I remember one speech in January of 2017 in uh, the USA when she went over to speak at a Republican convention there. Um, and I remember as we were landing in uh, Philadelphia where the speech was to be delivered, I was still writing the conclusion of the speech as we were coming into land, um, because such was the, the sort of busyness of the time. Um, but in that example, it was very much, you know, here's an initial idea, now I'm going to trust you to go away and, and draft it. And I'd known her for many years, so had that sense of her voice, her speaking style, how she liked things to be um, written uh, in my head. And so to have that trust was, uh, was great. But as I say, it came out partly as a result of the fact that she didn't love the process mm-hmm. Uh, of uh, sp- uh, making speeches um, and hadn't sort of come up uh, in that way, um, whereas I think some other prime ministers who'd been more, uh, I think probably Jess can talk to this, but David Cameron, for example, who'd been a special advisor, who'd probably been a speechwriter at times, probably enjoyed the process a bit more and thought, therefore was a bit more involved yeah. um, than Theresa was. Well,
1: I mean, Jess, I mean, coming to that, who, who do you need to sort of get rid of when writing a speech? Who do you need to who do you need to push out the room and make sure is excluded? And is that sometimes the prime minister themselves?
5: Um... No no I mean it, it was David Cameron was very hands-on with speeches as, as Chris had said, and you're right other people kind of try to get involved as well, but he was quite good at just speaking to the speech writers about the speech and you know if you're holding the pen you're the one who decides what's going in and, and what's not and people when you circulate these things they will have their say um, as we all know in our experience and you know Peggy Noonan who Phil referred to earlier writes about this in her biography you know the amount of people that want to have their say and she on their own bits in but ultimately you're holding the pen and i was very fortunate to work with a, a prime minister who you know took took my drafts and read them and and worked on them and we had lots of back and forth a bit like chris is talking about with drafts via the red box or via email um and yeah so he, he was very straightforward to work with on speeches mm. and we didn't have too many arguments about getting rid of people people would often pipe up and if there was quite a kind of crunchy line or a punchy or topical line they'd just try and strike it out and say oh no that this this is a bit controversial but you know if people are very good at striking things out very few people can actually come up with decent things themselves so you know that that was Um,
1: Phil are, are Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer good speakers would you say and how could they be better
0: I don't think either of them, you'd say, are wonderful speakers. Um, I mean, both of them are a bit flat. Um, but then that's just who they
1: are. I mean, I'll, I'll put that question to you, Jess, the same question. Are Sunak and Starmer good speakers, and how could they, how could they be better?
5: I think they. I think they are. Um, as as Phil said, that's just kind of. It's often a bit flat. I mean, we often talk in speeches. You want light and shade. And I feel like often um, the Prime Minister Sunak is is all light, and Starmer is a bit all shade. Um, they need to have a bit more balance in there and really play to their strengths. As I said, you know, the, the great speakers really connect with their audiences, and they need to find those kind of points of connection with the people that they're talking to and, and use language in that way and really. Avoid jargon. I mean, they they fall into the trap. Lots of politicians fall into the trap of using lots of jargon. And really, if they come back to those sort of Martin Luther King principles of making everything concrete and relatable and understandable and things that people can, um, you know, get to grips with and that's that would stand them both in good stead to make better speeches
1: that's all we've got time for on today's podcast matt chorley will be back tomorrow and don't forget to share subscribe like and follow wherever you get your podcasts from
3: planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince